Hello, I'm Dr. Sarah Hervitz, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you to today's educational activity titled Decoding Clinical Trial Data and Real-World Evidence in Metastatic Breast Cancer with a Focus on Individualized Care. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. Again, I'm Dr. Sarah Hervitz, Professor, Division of Hematology Oncology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Co-Director of the Santa Monica UCLA Outpatient Oncology Practice, and Director of the Breast Oncology Program. Now let me introduce our wonderful faculty for today's activity. First, Dr. Sarah Tulaney. Chief Division of Breast Oncology, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Senior Physician, Dana-Farber, and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Also joining us today is Jamil Rivers, metastatic breast cancer thriver, founder and CEO, the Chrysalis Initiative, at this website, thechrysalisinitiative.org, and board president, Metaviver Research and Support Incorporated in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome, Jamel. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So we have three learning objectives for today. The first is to utilize guideline treatment recommendations in the care of patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. The second is to evaluate safety and efficacy data from randomized controlled trials and real world evidence bearing on the treatment of patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. And our last objective is to integrate efficacy and safety real-world evidence for CDK4-6 inhibitors in patient education and counseling for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. So let me start off the discussion by reminding everyone of our current National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. As you can see here in the very rare situation of a patient having a visceral crisis with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer, you can consider initial systemic therapy, which may be chemotherapy, although we have some data emerging recently um, at San Antonio, Antonio from the Right Choice study indicating the use of a CDK4-6 inhibitor in combination with endocrine therapy may be just as effective or more effective than chemotherapy, even in patients who are bordering on visceral crisis. In those patients who do not have visceral crisis, regardless of whether they are pre- or postmenopausal, we initiate therapy with endocrine therapy um, and a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the majority of settings. And if you look at the preferred regimens in terms of first-line therapy, aromatase inhibitors with a CDK4-6 inhibitor is the first-line therapy of choice shown on the left side there. 
We have three choices of CDK4-6 inhibitors. We'll talk a little bit about later. Ribocyclib, which is classified as category one evidence, abemocyclib and palbocyclib. And we also have the availability of fulvestrin with the CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is a category one evidence for some patients um, in combination with ribocyclib or abemocyclib. And then subsequent lines of therapy include agents including fulvestrin, either in combination with the CDK4-6 inhibitor if a patient hasn't received it before. For those who have a PIK3CH mutated tumor, we have drugs, for example, alpilesib. We also have everolimus-based therapy. And then we now have um, an oral SIRD, uh, elicestrin, available for those patients whose uh, tumors harbor a uh, mutation in the gene for estrogen receptor. And a number of other therapies are available for our patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Now, we know based on some data that uh, biomarkers may change over the course of a patient's uh, diagnosis and treatment with metastatic disease, um, such that a patient who begins with hormone receptor positive breast cancer may experience loss of hormone receptor expression, um, sometimes gain of hormone receptor expression. So it's important for us to reanalyze uh, tumors at the time of the metastatic recurrence for hormone receptors. Also important to look at HER2 as well, in my opinion, with some patients having a gain or being found to have amplification in HER2 at the time of metastatic disease, and some patients having loss who did have amplification previously. Sometimes patients will go from being a primary hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer and will switch with gain in HER2 or loss of hormone receptor and a number of other various iterations are also possible. All of this just underscoring the importance of us testing a tumor at the time of a metastatic recurrence given that we do not have 100% concordance when we're comparing the primary tumor biomarkers with the metastatic uh, tumor biomarkers. And so now what I would like to do is pass uh, the discussion on to my colleague, Dr. Tulaney, to take us through data relating to the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in this setting. Sarah, you wanna take it from here? Uh, thanks so much for that really nice overview. And so when we think about hormone receptor positive disease, I think it's important to realize that it's not uncommon to see that these cancers have overexpression of cyclin D. And we know that this can result in phosphorylation of RB, which can result in release of E2F and then transcription of key genes that move the cell cycle from G1 to S. Uh, but we do have ways of trying to halt this cell cycle by using CDK4-6 inhibitors, and we're fortunate now to have three different CDK4-6 inhibitors approved, halbocyclob, abemocyclob, and ribocyclob, all of which, in essence, inhibit CDK4-6, which therefore results in halting of the cell cycle at that G1S transition point which then puts the cell into a senescent state. And it's thought that maybe prolonged senescence can even lead to apoptosis. And so a really clever way to work to kill some of these cancer cells that are so dependent on cyclin D. 
And given these data, it really did lead to um, multiple clinical trials that tested CDK4-6 inhibitors. And as you can see on this slide, there are multiple phase three studies that looked at adding a CDK4-6 inhibitor to an endocrine backbone, either in the first line setting or in the second line and beyond setting. And data suggests that in the first line setting, we really saw pretty remarkably similar data. So whether you used halbocyclib or abemocyclib or ribocyclib, when you added those agents to an endocrine backbone in a first-line setting, you really saw that these agents doubled progression-free survival very consistently. So hazard ratios across all these trials are around 0.55. Uh, and so these data really did lead to CDK4-6 inhibitors becoming standard of care for first-line metastatic hormone receptor-positive breast cancer patients. There has been a little bit of controversy that has arisen, though, with regards to whether or not these agents may have any differences between them. While all three agents are clearly CDK4-6 inhibitors, we do see some differences with regards to clinical efficacy when we start looking at overall survival. And so what we've seen is that in the first-line setting, all the ribocyclob trials that looked at ribo in this setting, whether it was Mona Lisa 2, adding ribocyclob to an AI, Mona Lisa 3, adding ribocyclob to fulvestrant, which looked at this both in the first and second line setting, or Mona Lisa 7, which looked specifically at adding ribocyclob to endocrine therapy in premenopausal patients, you see survival benefit in all of these trials. With abemocyclib, we did see a significant improvement in overall survival in Monarch 2, which had looked at abemocyclib being added to fulvestrant, really in a second-line population. Data from Monarch 3 for OS is not quite mature, and while there is a trend towards survival benefit, we're hoping to see more of this data uh, this year in 2023 with the final OS analysis, but at the time of the second interim didn't quite hit statistical significance, but did have a large delta between the two arms favoring abemocyclib. And then with regards to pelvocyclib, we did not see a statistically significant benefit in Paloma 3, which had looked at adding palbo to fulvestrin in a second line and beyond setting. And we also did not see a survival advantage in Paloma 2. And I think this was a bit surprising uh, to many of us when we saw these data. Um, you know, palbocyclob was the first CDK4-6 inhibitor to get approved. And again, all these agents had remarkably consistent PFS differences. And so why is it that we're now seeing differences with regards to overall survival? And so, you know, I think given these data, though, we have been using more uniformly, many of us, ribocyclib, because it's the one agent in the first-line setting that does have a statistically significant survival benefit. The data, again, from Abema in the first-line setting is still pending for final OS uh, benefit. Um, you know, it's hard because I think there are many reasons that maybe uh, the pelvocyclob data was negative in the first line, which we'll uh, circle back to. Um, again, there were, it was the first CDK approved, uh, and so there are a lot of patients who came off study and likely crossed over to pelvocyclob, which I think does make this a bit challenging to interpret, so there's a lot of loss of survival data in that study. But nonetheless, this is the data we have. And, and so again, at this time, most of us are using ribocyclib. I think the other question that arises is if we are using a CDK4-6 inhibitor, is there an optimal endocrine backbone to use with it? 
And we have some data from the Parsifal study, which had looked at either an aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrant in this upfront endocrine-sensitive setting and saw really no difference, suggesting that you don't need to pick an AI uh, instead of fulvestrin or vice versa, usually we pick this simply based on prior endocrine therapies the patient would have received in the early disease setting and what that disease-free interval was from last exposure. And I think, again, we'll touch upon this a, a bit later, but there are differences in toxicity profiles that I think can also influence choice of CDK4-6 inhibitor treatment. And then I think the challenging we're, we're now facing is what to do after a CDK4-6 inhibitor, where we do have a lot of different options to think about. Um, you know, while we do have data for use of CDK4-6 inhibition in the second-line setting, as we alluded to earlier with Paloma-3, Monarch-2, and patients also from Mona Lisa-3, and again, do see very consistent PFS benefit here, I think that the challenge is that Knowing the survival benefit that can be gained, most of us like to use CDK4-6 inhibitors really in a first-line setting and are not really using these um, second-line uh, anymore at this time, uh, again, even though there, there is benefit here. So with that, I will turn it back to Sarah uh, to put this into perspective um, with how we're actually treating patients in, the, in this setting. Thank you so much uh, for that wonderful overview. And, you know, trials can demonstrate effects, but putting those data into action in the real world becomes much more complicated when you are sitting with the patient and discussing what therapy to begin. Jamil, you work with women living with breast cancer. Can you talk a little about some of the challenges these patients face in getting the care they need? Absolutely. So thank you again so much for having me. And what we're finding with our work is that it's a lot of information to just understand what type of cancer they have, um, what clinical trials are available to them. Um, when you think about most patients, uh, the majority of cancer patients are being treated at community hospitals. So maybe not a center with on-site clinical trials that they can access. So a lot of times what we're able to um, do is just let them know what clinical trials they're eligible for, which ones are available in their immediate area, and how there are potential partnerships with the current community hospitals that they're receiving care. Um, also, just figuring out um, what is covered, what are the costs, um, and when it, in regards to their insurance coverage, a lot of them are not aware of some of the protections um, available nationwide as part of their coverage when it comes to those out-of-pocket costs, and so connecting them to um, also those supportive resources to kind of navigate through all those concerns. And so it's finding what clinical trials are available to them, which ones they should consider also, because um, unfortunately what we see with some sites is that, you know, they understand that that diversity is important. They know that they want to reach those certain population numbers. And so a lot of times, um, some people are not being directed to the clinical trial that would be um, the most dynamic for them to have the most durable response. So we want to make sure that they understand what is their stage of breast cancer, what is uh, the implications to the biomarkers and treatments, the treatment history, and understanding with all of that information how to make the best decision in regards to what clinical trial is available to them. And I think more and more um, clinical trial sites are understanding that there are people attached to these tumors in, in cancer. And so how do we make it so that it's accessible to just day-to-day -day concerns? 
um, half of patients are still going to have to figure out work and running their households and taking care of their children and families. A lot of um, adult uh, women with breast cancer are also caregivers to elderly parents. So factoring in all those concerns, and we're able to work with them to thought partner on piecing it all together, how to make the best choice and fit for them um, in order to navigate those challenges. And I think also there's just the immediate bias and racism within um, some of the sites, too. Um, I think uh, a lot of times most sites, this is not on their radar. They're thinking that, you know, they have their procedures in place and so nothing to see here. Um, but they have to make sure that even if they have the best intentions and best practices and procedures and processes, that it's actually reaching the benefit of the patient. And sometimes they have to have that accountability in place to make sure that bias is not interfering with that process. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was such a good summary of um, some of the issues that we're facing to make sure we're delivering outstanding care to all of our patients, regardless of their circumstances, um, race, or ethnicity. So thank you for doing a nice broad strokes overview of the nuances of, this, of these concerns. We do use real world evidence to help guide our treatment. Often clinical trials are done in sort of isolation in the healthiest patients, patients who tend to be Caucasian and have access to outstanding healthcare. And so when new drugs are evaluated and approved, um, we then take them out and we apply them. We prescribe them to patients that may not have qualified for those very rigidly defined uh, patient eligibility criteria that the trials um, had uh, that led to the approval of these agents. So we need to make sure that these drugs um, have a similar um, safety profile as well as effectiveness. And so I'd like to uh, introduce to a video that will go through some of this uh, important information. In oncology, Real-world evidence, or RWE, refers to evidence derived from the use and analysis of real-world data, or RWD, which are data obtained outside the context of randomized controlled trials, or RCTs. While RCTs are the gold standard for assessing the efficacy of new cancer therapies, the importance of RWE in oncology has been increasing with the growing recognition that RCTs might not always accurately reflect the general cancer patient population. In fact, in oncology, up to two-thirds of real-world patients are not represented by RCTs. It is unclear whether findings from RCTs can be generalized to these patients and whether real-world patients respond to treatments in the same way as clinical trial participants. Here's where RWE can help. RWE may be more generalizable to patients in clinical practice and can aid in better understanding the impact of drugs while providing information on long-term follow-up and chronic use. Appropriate use of RWE can supplement traditional clinical research to aid in clinical decision-making, offer insights into treatment selection, and improve access to therapy for underserved patient populations. Okay, Sarah Tolaney, Dr. Tolaney, would you be able to uh, take us through some data on real world evidence, please? 
Yeah, no, thank you so much. You know, I think we're so used to in oncology really looking at randomized clinical trials, um, really because they are such robust studies. They're well-powered, and they have a very, um, you know, strict patient populations that really allow us to understand benefits in a particular group of people, and they're usually randomized to have a control arm, uh, so we have a true comparison to understand the added benefit of the treatment that we're studying, um, and they are prospective um, studies. So, you know, really the gold standard for how we think about making um, drugs become new standard treatments for our patients. But I think as, you know, the video did show us, there are some limitations to these randomized studies because we often are omitting lots of different types of patients. Um, you know, you can look at these randomized trials and note that they often are omitting older patients, patients with diverse backgrounds, uh, patients who may not have access to coming to a clinical trial center to get treatment. And so we're not really picking up all patients. Um, again, they're very uniform in nature, given very rigid eligibility criteria, but that's not really the real world. Some people do have some baseline comorbidities that may not have been eligible for the trials, but we're treating them uh, with these agents, and we need to understand how these drugs work in all patients. And so there are some advantages to looking at real-world data, because it does allow us to look at efficacy in broader patient populations. They are more heterogeneous than the clinical trial, but again, that is the real world. Those are the patients we are seeing actually in clinic. And so it does give us a better sense of how patients are doing, um, you know, that are more like the patients that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are lots of different types of real-world studies. There are prospective observational studies, which really um, allow us to follow patients prospectively um, and assess how they do, again, without those narrow eligibility uh, requirements, but allow us, again, to get real-world data in a prospective fashion. But you can also look at retrospective observational data. So maybe, um, you know, data that's been collected on patients that have been treated and look back at how they did um, to understand um, their uh, benefits to treatment. Obviously, there are going to be biases in um, these types of analyses. Uh, there are reasons uh, certain patients got certain treatments, um, and certainly that can influence outcomes. Um, but there are ways we can try to control for that. There are also registries that we often create to be able to understand real-world evidence. A lot of companies will run post-marketing studies, again, to get a better sense of how these drugs do after the drug has hit approval, uh, but be able to look at it in, again, a, a broader patient population. And then there are cohort studies. Um, you know, I think a lot of us have these ongoing at our own institutions uh, and certainly also case series that can be put together. And so we have seen data now that has looked at real-world evidence for CDK4-6 inhibition. And I think given the challenges that we've seen, particularly with the Paloma 2 data, where we did have a lot of loss of follow-up of patients for survival data, there were actually two different approvals for pelvicyclob that occurred during that OS follow-up time point in Paloma 2. So a lot of patients saw that this drug was available and they were randomized to could be randomized to placebo uh, and certainly wanted to come off the study to get guaranteed access to drug. And so they did get a lot of people who dropped off of the study and didn't have, you know, follow-up for those people. And so I think it, it is a setting where getting real-world data for overall survival can be helpful to help us better understand how people are doing, um, again, in a real-world setting. 
And so these data from P Reality X um, helped um, us understand real world evidence for survival in patients getting um, endocrine therapy with palbociclib compared to endocrine therapy alone. In this case, the endocrine backbone here was an aromatase inhibitor. Um, so again, very much like a Paloma 2 type um, setting where you do see that there did seem to be survival advantage. Um, and so I think here, um, you know, it is interesting. So why are we now seeing survival advantage in a real world setting, but we didn't see survival advantage in the true um, randomized phase three study? So what are what are the differences bringing out this difference? And, you know, I, I think as we think about it, I, one, no one really knows the answer <laughs> to this, but I, I think there are lots of plausible reasons this could be the case. If we look at Paloma 2, we do know that that trial was underpowered for overall survival. At the time the study was designed, no one could have predicted the tremendous benefit that was going to be seen with these agents, and what was estimated for survival was far different than what actually ended up happening, and so the study was not adequately powered for OS. There was also a high rate of crossover, and the true rate, I think, is actually unknown because some people did, again, drop off, uh, at, particularly at those time points of pelvicyclic approvals, and they some of them did not consent to follow up. And so we don't really know what happened to some of those patients in the real world, uh, and that's, again, going to cause a little bit of trouble with interpretation um, in a randomized study. Again, there was also missing data, again, due to that drop-off. Um, and I think, you know, one issue could be that, well, maybe this study, the randomized study was actually negative. Maybe all these reasons that I've just reviewed aren't true reasons, and, and maybe we should just believe the data. There was no survival benefit in Paloma 3 either, um, so maybe it's not unsurprising there, that there's no survival benefit in Paloma 2, and maybe these drugs are different. Maybe uh, ribocyclob is a more potent CDK4 inhibitor, maybe abemocyclob is a more potent CDK4 inhibitor, and maybe that's why those drugs are seeing differences that are not necessarily being seen with pelvocyclob. But, you know, we don't know, and, and so we do see some data to the contrary, because again, there is OS benefit seen in the real world setting, um, and I think that's what's making us question, um, you know, what is actually the, the truth here. And so I, I don't know the answer. I don't think any of us really know, um, but I think it does make us have some caution with interpretation of the randomized phase three data and the real world data does actually shine light on this, which is quite hopeful. But so while I don't know the right answer uh, in terms of who's the best CDK4-6 inhibitor to choose, and I can just tell you that ribo is the one that has known survival benefit, I can tell you that this side effect profiles are different. And so in addition to looking at efficacy when prescribing these agents, we do need to consider side effects um, when we are thinking about this. And we know palbociclib and ribociclib both are associated with pretty high rates of neutropenia. Almost half of our patients do require dose modification due to neutropenia with these agents. One unique side effect of ribociclib is its prolongation of the QTC, and so it uniquely does require EKG monitoring, whereas the other two drugs do not. Abemocyclib uh, doesn't cause, does not cause quite as much neutropenia as palbociclib and ribociclib, but does cause GI toxicity. So we do see diarrhea with abemocyclib. That does need to be monitored, and we do need to counsel our patients on how to appropriately manage that. 
And there are some more rare side effects that we can see with these drugs, like potential interstitial lung disease, um, which, you know, is probably 5% or less across these drugs. And then um, some risk of venous thromboembolic events, which has also been reported. So important to keep those in mind um, when using these drugs. And so while I think it's pretty uniform that we should use CDK4-6 inhibitors in the first-line setting, I think the challenge that we're now facing is what to do beyond that. And one of the questions that has arisen is, is there a role for continuing a CDK4-6 inhibitor beyond progression? Unfortunately, what we've seen is that when we use an endocrine drug by itself in someone who's progressed on an endocrine agent and a CDK4-6 inhibitor, the duration of time for which disease is controlled is usually quite short. Most trials report a PFS of only about two months. And so I think it, it really does highlight our need to do better here. And so there was this question about, well, could we just maybe switch the endocrine backbone and maybe switch the CDK4-6 inhibitor and could we see benefit? And that was what was studied in the maintained trial in essence, where patients got upfront endocrine therapy CDK4 with most people having gotten pelvicyclob, and then they went on to switch their endocrine backbone and then get ribocyclob or placebo in that setting. And this was a randomized phase two, so it is not definitive by any means. Um, it is a small study, but did show that there was benefit to using ribocyclob here. So the PFS with the endocrine therapy ribo was a little over five months compared to under three months with the endocrine monotherapy, which is pretty consistent, again, with what we've seen from other trials looking at endocrine monotherapy here. And so, you know, I think there's this question is, should we be switching um, patients to another CDK4 beyond progression? We have also seen data from the PACE trial, which had looked at this question of continuing pelvicyclob beyond pelvicyclob, which actually did not show benefit in this randomized phase two. So I would say there's no role at this time for continuing pelvicyclob beyond pelvicyclob. But I think the question in my mind is, should we be using ribocyclob or bemocyclob in the post-CDK setting? Because I do think there probably are some patients that may derive benefit from this strategy, but I think we need to understand this a little bit more. And I think in the future, maybe when we get a little more sophisticated, maybe we will be able to understand who derives benefit from this strategy by looking at genomic characteristics of the tumor at time of progression. Because I do think there's some people where, you know, if they developed an RB mutation, they're not going to benefit from a continuation strategy. And those are patients that really shouldn't get this approach. But maybe um, for patients who developed endocrine resistance and not CDK4-6 resistance, maybe this switch of endocrine backbone and continuation of CDK4 may be a good strategy. So at this point, I'd say, you know, this is not definitive and not something that should be done standardly, and we do need more data. And there are actually several ongoing trials that will address this even further. Um, there's the post-Monarch study, there's Palmyra, and then Ember-3, which I think is particularly interesting because it's also looking at a CERD in this setting um, with or without a bemocyclob compared to endocrine monotherapy. So I think a lot more to come. I think another strategy that we do think about in the post-CDK setting is use of PI3 kinase inhibition. And we do know that this pathway is altered in about 40% of our ER-positive patients. And using a, a PI3 kinase inhibitor like alpalisib has been proven to improve progression-free survival in those patients with a PI3K mutation and is a standard option that can be considered uh, for those patients. And then very recently, we got approval for our very first oral CERD, so a selective estrogen receptor degrader. 
Our only CERD to date has really been fulvestrant, which is an intramuscular injection and does have pretty poor bioavailability, making many think that it may not be the best way to administer a CERD. And so there have been multiple new oral CERDs that have been developed, and you can see a list of them uh, on this slide here. Um, and we now have approval for elicestrant, which was studied in the randomized phase three emerald trial, which showed that it performed better than standard endocrine therapy in a post-CDK4-6 setting, and now has approval in patients whose tumors harbor an ESR1 mutation. And so when we think about what to do after a CDK4-6 inhibitor, I think it's pretty complicated um, that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, what I do in someone who's progressed on a CDK4-6 is I do get um, genomic information. So I usually will send a circulating tumor DNA assay so that I can understand how they developed an ESR1 mutation in this setting. Do they have a PI3 kinase mutation? Um, you know, what is going on with their tumor at that time so I understand what the optimal therapy approach is? If they are PI3 kinase wild type and ESR1 mutant, I think elicestrant becomes a really nice approach for them. Whereas if they have a PI3 kinase mutation, I tend to favor use of alpholisib. Or uh, if they have a lot of visceral involvement uh, at time of progression and are PI3K wild type, I tend to want to add a targeted drug to my endocrine backbone. And so I'll often use Everlimus in combination with fulvestrant in that setting. But there are multiple new agents coming down the pipe here, and, and actually the clinical trial space in the setting is quite uh, crowded with lots of trials ongoing, um, and we're hoping to see an approval later this year for Kepivisertib, an oral AKT inhibitor, which was recently shown to have benefit uh, in this uh, particular space as well. So, you know, I think um, lots of treatment options here, and I think um, and hope that we'll get a little more sophisticated in figuring out the optimal treatment approach for our patients upon progression, but I think a little more work needs to be done to, to get there. So I'll turn it back to, to Sarah to lead us through the next part of the program. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a really good overview. These are not easy decisions to make when we're choosing among these agents. And also it's really difficult to also decide what therapy to use after CDK4-6 inhibitor. So thank you very much for that nuanced discussion. So now that we've covered clinical aspects of treatment personalization, let's talk more about personalizing treatment in the real world. Jamil, can you take it from here? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Dr. Tellini really gave a, you know, the complexities that are involved to just determining what the best treatment is uh, with metastatic breast cancer. And so when we have a number of different um, activations when it comes to the Chrysalis Initiative, where um, we are meeting with patients, um, they are able to connect with our BC NABI app, which has the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines within the app. In addition to connecting them with a breast cancer survivor or thriver who has a similar treatment history, similar um, other uh, similarities in life as far as kids and age and location in the country. Um, and so we're able to really help them piece everything together when we think about comprehensive personalized care. So making sure that when they are first getting diagnosed, are they getting that second opinion? Are they um, on to the latest and greatest when it comes to innovation of understanding what is the best treatment for their specific type of cancer? And so how does stage play into that? Um, the subtype, 
um, where the um, tumors are located, what type of side effects are they experiencing, and then also thinking about clinical trials, um, the effectiveness of their insurance coverage, and how to incorporate that in their day-to-day -day decisions, and so and also just managing the side effects and symptoms of different treatments and what to anticipate. And we find that being able to preemptively provide that uh, chrysalis or reinforce, reinforcement, if you will, helps them adhere to these regimens longer and better um, and able to really understand um, how to participate in that treatment regimen, what um, questions to ask and how to advocate effectively for themselves um, really helps to make sure that on that care continuum that they're able to adhere to it. And then on the other side, there is the cancer centers. So I think cancer centers, they want to provide the best care to folks, um, but really understanding how they could be falling short when it comes to women of color. And so a great thing about the work that we do is using the NCCN guidelines um, with their data and their uh, standard operating procedures, revealing those blind spots. So how is it in that cancer care delivery where is it that it's falling short when it comes to their patients of color? And we find that it's in all different areas of the continuum. It could be initially as far as the delay when they first walk through those doors. Are they being turned away? Because, again, Black women typically are diagnosed younger with metastatic breast cancer. Um, they might not have any particular history in their family. And are they getting that uh, full diagnostic workup if it is a newly, newly diagnosis or if it's a uh, progression, if you will, or recurrence. And so making sure that that genomic testing that Dr. Tillani was talking about really can hone in and identify what the best treatment is for that particular patient so that they're not constantly having that repeated progression over and over and over again. And we find so many times where on paper, you know, it's easy to qualify for that clinical trial if you are a metastatic person um, with uh, breast, metastatic breast cancer and you might have had uh, subsequent progressions, but what is the best um, treatment for that individual cancer? And so um, we find that with our patient navigation, connecting folks to resources, and explaining to them the individual type of treatment for their personalized type of cancer, which one is the best for them, and then also revealing the blind spots to the cancer centers is really eliminating these disparities. And so we're really excited about the work that we're doing in order to really make sure that people are, are not just getting the best medical care, but able to adhere and stay on track with that care and helping cancer centers understand that some of these challenges are not just only related to socioeconomics, but due to just how do we incorporate this in our day-to-day -day lives and the unique challenges of people who might not have that support system in place, or how do they just navigate cancer care with their day-to-day -day lives? Thank you so much. It's so great to have resources like this to help us deliver better care and to more of our patients. So I think now we're at the point where I'm going to wrap this up a little bit. Let's go through some of what we have actually uh, just talked about. So um, in our, we have guidelines, guidelines published by many of our organizations and by the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that offer the best treatment options available for our patients currently with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. These are evidence-based guidelines that we should be utilizing in our practice. 
We know based on phase three randomized clinical trials that abemocyclib and ribocyclib have both been demonstrated when added to endocrine therapy to offer an overall survival benefit to our patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. We still don't have evidence yet from a phase three clinical trial that palbocyclib offers that sort of uh, overall survival benefit, but for all the reasons that Dr. Tulaney described, these studies may not have been designed or able to determine that type of benefit. We know that changes in hormone receptor status and HER2 status may occur at metastatic progression uh, across all types of breast cancer, so it's important for us to recheck at the time of diagnosis of metastatic disease. There are studies investigating switching endocrine therapy and or CDK4-6 inhibitors at the time of progression for select patients um, who are on one CDK4-6 inhibitor and their disease progresses. At this point, this does not remain standard of care. We need a phase three trial. There is one ongoing called Postmonarch, looking at whether switching from a CDK4-6 inhibitor to a bemocyclib at the time of progression is beneficial. Real-world evidence suggests that PFS is similar to that uh, reported in clinical trials in hormone receptor positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. That's very reassuring. And real-world evidence also agrees with randomized controlled trials that these therapies improve health-related quality of life. There are patient navigation services available to our patients to improve quality of care treatment adherence, and reducing the number of patients experiencing perceived racism. So let's review our SMART goals, the specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. Advocate for guideline concordant treatments. Review hormone receptor status and HER2 status at the time of progression of disease, at least from the time of primary to metastatic site. Consider switching endocrine therapy and or CDK4-6 inhibitors upon progression, although in my opinion, this should be done in the context of a clinical trial, not outside of one, and review the significance and value of real-world efficacy and safety data with your patients. We want to make decisions with our patients rather than for them and offer patient navigation services that include peer navigators uh, whenever possible for your patients. So to, um, I want to thank, first of all, Sarah and Jamil for that very interesting discussion. Um, and I would like to point out to our viewers that if you'd like to receive CME and CE credit for today's program, complete the post-test and evaluation. You'll be able to download and print your certificate immediately upon completion. Lastly, please visit the CME Outfitters Oncology Hub to access additional activities on relevant oncology topics and the Diversity and Inclusion Hub for discussions on disparities in healthcare, as well as resources and patient education material. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Tolaney and Ms. Rivers for our discussion today. Very informative and important. And thank you to our audience for joining us today.